Good. Now turn to Genesis 17 for the reading of God's word. That's where we're going to be today. It's in the beginning of your Bibles with the first, it's the 17th chapter if you're looking for it. Please uh, read along with me and stand. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for, your, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give to you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become many nations kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham 
Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in the house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that every day Abraham and his son Ishmael that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him the word of the Lord thanks be to God uh, a few years ago, my mother changed her name. It was uh, kind of weird, and it wasn't just her last name, but it was actually her first name also. Uh, she went down to the Social Security office, filled out the appropriate paperwork, and kind of walked out as a new person. In changing her name, she was no longer associated with the last name Hoppy, which she had uh, maybe had for the past 28 years or so. In a way, she was symbolically wiping away the past, the things maybe she was ashamed of, the things that she was guilty of, the things that hurt her heart. And in many ways, she had many hurts, and I understand those. And she believed she was becoming a new person by changing the way that she was identified. Uh, imagine how hard it was for me, though, whenever I was trying to write her a letter and I did not know what name to put on there. The name that I had learned for so many years or a different name that she was calling herself. The sign of her change of identity was the little social security card. And many of us nowadays have refused this idea that anything outside of us can possibly name us, tell us who we are. Uh, we kind of shrug off ideas like biological sex uh, on our birth certificates and different things like that. How dare anything come from outside in? You see, she was changing the way she was identified and hope that she could change her identity. And many of us are wondering how we can do that, how we could become a new person. How can we change the past? And so that is what maybe Abraham was wrestling with at that time. 13 years after he had failed miserably, 13 years waiting for this promised son, and even longer from the time that God had promised him, he was still fatherless. And so he needed something to change. He needed new life. But it is a lot harder than just going down to the Social Security office or entering the Federal Witness Protection Program to become a new person. Rather, it takes God's, the, the, it takes the God of the universe giving himself to a people, becoming their God, reorienting their primary relationship around a new God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who uh, gives himself for a people. It takes reorienting our lives around him and receiving him through the signs that he has given. It happens by grace. And what we find out in Christianity, that grace is free, but it is not cheap. It is rather costly. You see, we all carry within ourselves and in our persons these stories uh, who make us who we are. We all have these little I identities, whether it be your ethnicity, uh, the, name the, parents, the, the name in which your parents gave you, 
they are our, uh, the generation that we grew up. It is the hobbies. It is the schools we went to. It is the job that I work. They make up these little I identities. But when we come to think about it, what makes up our big I identity? What makes me me? And what God is showing and what Genesis shows us, it is the primary relationship in our life. And in this text, God is forcefully saying that when I become your God, I become a, I, I give to you and bestow upon you a new identity, Abraham, that your name will change radically and you will bear that change in your person as a sign. And so we have a primary relationship, every one of us do that make us who we are, that give us our standing in life, that makes us feel valuable, that makes us feel glorious. Here, Abraham will encounter God and will embrace in his body the identifying marker of his relationship with God. And this identifying marker will be extended to the children after him and continue to go on as a covenant sign that God, Yahweh, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he is the one in whom they are in relationship with and it makes up their big eye identity. Only by God's grace then can a person's identity truly change. Only by God's grace do we get new life and do we enter a new creation. It is only by his grace, his initiation, and his seeing through with his promises in this covenant that we have that. And that he gives us a new primary relationship. And that is where our, identi our identities are established. This is why in Christian theology, union with Christ, our relationship with Jesus is first and foremost. It is primary. And that is what we embrace and when we embrace Jesus as our relationship with him and everything that he's done for us, his righteousness, we embrace that. His life, death, resurrection, we embrace that for ourselves. And so, how in the world do we know uh, what the heck are we embracing instead of Jesus? How in the world can we find out what are, what are we building our identities on? Well, think about it this way. Uh, whenever an animal is threatened, what do they do? They uh, hide their necks. Why? Because it is a place where they feel most vulnerable. And even if uh, humans do the same thing, they actually hide their necks and their throats whenever they feel threatened. And so whenever coronavirus came out, what is it that we hid? What is it that we wanted to protect? What is it that we felt most vulnerable or exposed at that moment? Was it, uh, was it our job performance? Was it having well-behaved kids? Was it my orderly house? Was it my relationship with my spouse? Was it, uh, I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it just did. Spouse, house, all of a sudden I'm Dr. Seuss. What is going on here? Um, <laughs> there are many things in which we put our identities or we try to express ourselves to show the world that I'm a valuable or, or a worthy person. And they're all performance-based. And whenever you have a performance-based or expressive identity, when you have to try to express yourself from the inside 
out, that is when you have a vulnerable identity, one that could be taken away from you. And when coronavirus shows up, all of a sudden your adventurous Instagrammable life is no longer adventurous or Instagrammable. Everybody else is eating ramen at home with you. It is not that exciting. Your identity has been taken away from you. What you find most valuable has been taken away from you. That great relationship, that one that you worked hard, so hard on, gone. You can't even see the person except for on Zoom. And then you always feel unstable. You can't really read their body language, how they're receiving you. And all of a sudden you feel insecure about like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if this person really likes me. Am I doing it right? Am I relating to this person correctly? And we freak out. You see, if we live in that type of world where our identity is one that we make up and it is not bestowed upon us by God, then we're always in flux. We're always in flux and it is always dependent upon our performance. But how do we get the validation without our need to perform, but rather it is by someone's promise or someone else's performance for us is what Christianity says. In Christianity, we have a sign of our identity in our relationship with God. In the New Testament, we have baptism. We enter into a community of people that have been washed clean by, by Jesus, that we enter into death with him and we are raised to new life. We have a new beginning, a new identity amongst a community and a group of people. The sign isn't individualistic, but it's corporate. It's for a body. We read in our text that this relationship is God, uh, is, he is signing and sealing, and it is a parallel with circumcision. And we see, get that out of Colossians 2. And it says in that God, what he is doing is he is sealing this relationship. And he says this is, it shows that this is to demonstrate his relationship with a people and an offspring, that this is for your offspring and through the generations that will come after you. And it is to show by taking on the sign, we take baptism in the New Testament and circumcision, circumcision in the Old Testament is a sign that we belong to this God. It is an initiatory rite. And so we see baptism comes before taking of the Lord's Supper because we are initiated into that people. We see that this is a changing of identity. It is not just changing of names. Do you know, oftentimes they did not give children names until they were actually initiated into this community. By circumcision, they would get, be given the name. And so this is how we identify ourselves, how we express ourselves. It is by being made and put into a new relationship with God that changes us by taking on his sign. And so God takes the sharpie of his love here onto the body of Abraham. He establishes his relationship and signs into the skin of Abraham that this one belongs to me. And so we come with a question, and all of us maybe wonder this question day in and day out. How in the world can we change our past? How can we change our story? How can we change who we are? How can we change our identity? And the scripture text tells us this, by God's commitment and by becoming vulnerable. 
by God's commitment, and by becoming vulnerable. And so, we believe that first in God's commitment, identity within Christianity is one that is outside in, that it has to be bestowed upon you and is dependent not based on your performance or your expression, but rather on God's giving it to you and determining it for you. And in so many ways, we, we all wrestle with this because we're always trying to get, even if you're an expressive person, you're always trying to get the positive verdict for somebody. You're always trying to express yourself and then at the same time, you want the outside affirmation of your expression, the outside information of your uh, confirmation of your identity through things like uh, Instagram likes and Facebook likes, or uh, even if you are uh, maybe maybe it is uh, maybe you're on Hinge, the dating app, and you're a single person, and what you want is someone to uh, approach you and like you and to affirm you as a person through this form of expression. You may not actually be on there to date. You are just on there to give some people some affirmation or them to give it to you. You may not actually go and date, but that's the way it goes. But here, God's commitment, God's uh, forever, always love, his going after Abraham after 13 years, and the fact that Abraham, the last story we see of Abraham is 13 years ago, and homeboy is a failure. He messes up. He sins. We see God initiate then here that he shows up, the Lord shows up and declares himself and he says, I am going to make my covenant with you. It is not Abraham jumping up and down and saying, hey, save me, notice me, look at me, like look at all I've done for you. Rather, it is God coming after this person who would rather run away from him, try to do everything for him and perform. But that isn't the way God does it. God is the main character here. The narrator starts with identifying this, that after 13 years, after the episode with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, 13 years, 13 years between chapters, 13 years after moral failure, God comes after Abraham. And do you think that maybe during that time, Abraham wrestled with God's promises? Probably. He probably shamed himself thinking, I failed, I messed up. But God shows up and says, no, I've got you. I love you. I am the God of the universe coming to get you. And I will see to it that my promises happen. And so this is probably why Abraham show, laughs and goes, this cannot happen. He laughs. And the narrator identifies, the, identifies God as the Lord. This is the one who is able to do it. He's the covenant-making God. and he introdu God introduces himself as God Almighty, disclosing that he is the God universally of all people and that he is disclosing his ability, his ability to change the plight of Abraham. And it requires that Abraham respond from the heart and to live according to that relationship to live according to the reality that God comes after him, to live according to the reality that it is God's grace, God's initiation. And he must walk in accordance that God, in order that God may make it happen. As one commentator writes, total obedience was necessary, uh, was the necessary condition to experience the covenant promises. To walk before God means to orient one's entire life to this presence to God's presence, promises, and demands. 
to orient one's life, to establish your identity on this relationship that is initiated by God and his goodness to you. The covenant God gives a gift, but it must be walked in and embraced from the heart. And so God establishes this relationship and the commitment of God is shown through the change of this identity. He changes Abraham's name from Abram, which means exalted father, probably pointing that his father was Terah, who was a great man. And now God changes his name to Abraham, Abraham, which is, means father of a multitude. And so he is changing the story of Abram. Abram is no longer Abram. He is Abraham, and he will be known forever as Abraham. And he had this identity change, that he would be made into a multitude, and it is by God's commitment, God's promise. And it, what is this multitude? The multitude isn't just physical children, because it only talks about him having Ishmael and Isaac. But then it talks about this great multitude. In Psalm 87, it talks about Egyptians and Babylonians coming in and praising God and becoming sons of Abraham. John 1.13 talks about by faith, you become children of God. Galatians 3.29 talks about that the uh, Jew, Greek, Scythian, barbarian, uh, male, female, they are all children of this promise. And so what is this multitude? What is God's commitment? It, God's commitment to Abraham is that this is his steadfast love to see the sad things come untrue, come through Abraham and work through Abraham that you and I may become children of Abraham by faith. This is the multitude, the ones you are worshiping with right now. And it is by grace that we get there. And the response to which we do that is to embrace it at the heart. And that changes and drives our identity. You know, think of it this way. That's what we build our lives on. Uh, you know, the fact that God chooses us, sees us, notices us, makes a relationship with us, and then gives us a sign of that love, the question is, will we embrace it, walk in it, live in it daily? Will we actually live according to that? You know, will we be people who are gracious, patient, self-sacrificing? That's the way we lean into it. How are you with your spouse? Are you a scold? Do you try to make your spouse live according to your way? Do you try to get them to change by yelling at them? By freaking out at them? By manipulating them? By leveraging them? That isn't the way God does it. We read out of Romans. It is his kindness and love that cause us to repent and turn to him. It was God's kindness and initiation that shows up to Abraham after his moral failure. So think about it. Many of us are pretty flippant with our commitments too. God is committed to Abraham even if he's a screw-up. You know, think about our modern views of marriage. We're like, mm, I could just get a divorce. There's no fault divorce, we could do that. Uh, we grew apart. Uh, we decided to uh, mutually decouple. 
you know, people say this kind of language, but what kind of commitment is that? Does it hurt? Notice the pain that God puts his name and reputation upon a people and how many times these people will stain and mess up the name. How many times I do that to God? You know, and God is still gracious. God still comes after and God still remains with his people and he's committed to Abraham at this point. And that's what we're to reflect, we're to show that, to become more God-like, more Christ-like in our relationship. And so change does not happen by self-centered effort or expression, but by God's gracious kindness and mercy. And so with our spouse, how do we get them to change? Well, for one, we need to realize that probably isn't your role to get them to change. You are not the Christ. You cannot control them. They are responsible for their own junk. You cannot force them into being what you want them to be. And you cannot force your children also to be these flawless, perfect little children. That's not your role. You are not powerful enough to do that. Your roommates will not be the people you've always wanted them to be by your scolding. And so how do we imitate God? It is by gracious, patient love, even to the point of self-pain. We give ourselves. We give ourselves. And we point others to the mercy of Jesus. God makes a commitment. He seals it in blood. And that is the blood of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he lives accordingly to that. He lives according to his commitment. He says, I will be for these people, even to the point of pain, even to the point of blood. I will live for these people so that we may live in him. Think about your relationship with your kids. God comes to Abram and he fails. How many times do our kids do ridiculous, incompetent things? How many times? But we know and we look at the way God treats us. He's patient, long-suffering, caring, and committed. And so do you know how we can influence the identity of our kids and how they grow up? It's by pointing to the great God whom we serve by being patient, long-suffering, caring, committed, bearing with them without yelling, scolding, biting. It is by grace we've been saved, not by scolding. And we need to demonstrate that to other people. People don't change driving habits next to you by your scolding. You know? And so we see this goodness of God. We see his commitment. And we need to embrace that at the heart. And so God gives this sign he gives this sign to Abram, and I can imagine Abram's expression. And so he needs to become vulnerable. And he tells Abraham what to do. Abraham, I am probably with you, and I probably would have said, say what? You want me to do what? Excuse me? Like, probably looking around, I'm like, I, I am going to need some medical advisors here. This is going to be crazy. All right, but Abram's response to this relationship with this covenant God was, 
to remove the foreskin like to show that he this flesh this thing that had uh was the barrier to the fruit happening the fruit of god's promise was to be cut off and it was bloody and it was terrible and it left him in pain and it probably took him days to recover it left him vulnerable left him vulnerable and so he was vulnerable to attack and he was dependent on God that he would do this to himself or have this done to him in order that it would demonstrate his dependence on God. Think about it. Look at all this symbolism. You know, God's love goes straight to our shame. We always talk about that area as being a shameful part. We hide it, you know. We don't let our kids see that movie, you know, in that area. And so it goes straight to our shame. It is a sign of dependence that his God's supernatural promise will enable that a seed from Abraham, a son to be born, it will happen. And he will bear the scars of that in his person. And so God writes a story of his love in permanent marker right on Abraham. This is how you keep my covenant circumcision it's like a tattoo onto the heart of abraham he would know it in his entire person it was a permanent mark on him and so this lasting change would show a lasting identity change in his heart by taking it onto his person for Abraham to accept these terms means he depends in faith on God to make all his promises happen. It is not by the work of his hands. So circumcision signifies God's relationship with Abraham and the people. Now, people are probably wondering, how come it's only done with men? Uh, why not women? And so let me pause and say, God is speaking into a patriarchal society where men are the representatives of the household. But we also think about the sign was for that kings would come from Abraham and from, from his loins, it basically says, from there that it would come out. And so it was an appropriate sign. Now we sit there in our equality brain, sitting in the 21st century, wondering, well, why not women? Well, women are included as well. And we know that from Galatians 3, chapter, uh, verses 28 and 29, that God included women in this promises as well. And they would also be called heirs, women, as sons of God, which is good and interesting. But we see that it is not women, but we are judging that based on our 21st century equality lens. Now we're also going back, well, why such an archaic practice? This is bloody. This is brutal. This is unbelievable. Once again, uh, many societies had uh, done this practice, circumcision, uh, at that time. And it is brutal. It is difficult for us to understand. You know, it, 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 we... we uh, we need to be able to think think beyond just our kind of our scientific lens and, and way of doing things. And so we can't just judge it from 21st century scientific lenses. Um, people might ask me if you have questions, what about circumcision now and the value of it? You can ask me later. 
So that's a little apologetic station break. But what about this sign? You know, we, we talk about the parallel to it in the New Testament is baptism. So Christian salvation, the Christian identity is one that is completely countercultural. It is one that is bestowed on you from the outside and it affects, it affects you on the inside. It is not inside uh, uh, identity expressing itself outside. Rather, it is reverse. So the Christian way to grow is to become more vulnerable, to make yourself vulnerable. We grow by becoming less defensive, insecure, and, un and unwilling to confess. We become more needy, more humble, less defensive. That's the way Christian growth actually looks like. If you're becoming more Christian, you know that because you're less defensive. You realize in your heart, I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to be so insecure. I could confess when I messed up. We confess our own junk in the relationship. And why? We don't need to defend ourselves because the one who had all the defenses died defenseless and would even defend, and would even defend himself so that you could be defended by his blood. So you can ask for help. You don't have to fake it till you make it anymore. You have a countercultural identity, one that could be vulnerable, one that's dependent. And remember, this is God's sign to us, not our sign to God. God gives us this sign and we embrace it. Lady Macbeth agonized over what could wash the blood from her hands. In Christianity, it says that only Christ's scars can we be washed. Only by his blood are we made clean, are we made whole. Uh, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life was uh, when I was caught doing something uh, that I found to be incompetent sophomore year in German class. I grabbed a marker, and just for kicks and jokes, I drew a cartoon on the board. And as the substitute teacher started to try to erase it, I realized the nature of my shame. I had drawn on the board with permanent marker. And so for the next three years, I hid in shame every time I walked into that classroom and realized I had ruined that board. It was etched in my heart. The permanent marker wasn't just on the board, but was me hiding in shame every time I went in. And there are so many things that in our life we hide in shame we have guilt. How do we get escape from that? And what can take it away? It is only in Jesus' scars that he permanently has that takes the scars, the shame, the blemishes out of our hearts in which he gives us new hearts. J.K. Rowling writing and through the wise words of Dumbledore talking to a young Harry Potter who has a scar on his head, talking about his mom's sacrificial love that she gave her life for him, says this, Love is powerful as your mother's, 
for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person has loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. He has the protection. You can't see it. But it was on him. Love. Jesus was the flesh that was cut off. He was the one who truly bore the scars. He's the one who has the scars of your shame and my guilt in your shame. Our guilt in his hands forever. The Christian life is lived truly by making ourselves more vulnerable. Not by, not by becoming more defensive or having a good explanation for everything. Not by self-protecting. Verse 14 says, anyone who doesn't keep this covenant will be cut off. Jesus, the one who was the promised king, the true king, was cut off for his people so that we could be his forever. And when we embrace that from the heart, we're changed from the inside out. Our identity is no longer made by the strengths of our hands, but by the marks in his hands. And those who, who speak of his covenant of love those wounds speak of his covenant of love and that and that love etches itself into our hearts and gives us new hearts and a new identity and it is spoken by in his scars of love and that marks us as people his people forever let us pray almighty and gracious god we pray that you would Echo your love and grace into our hearts. That you would remove the scars and wounds, our fears that we hold in our identity. And that you would make us new people in the scars of Jesus, in his resurrection body. And that we may enter new life by his goodness. Lord, if there is anyone who is tuning in who have not trusted in you, I pray that you would turn their hearts now so that they would pray and call out to you to remove the scars and that your scars would bear their shame and guilt. And Lord, for those of us who have called you Lord for a long time, I pray that you would make us less defensive and more vulnerable and more dependent on you. That we would remember the sign of baptism that you have given us, that you have washed us clean, and it is not by the work of our hands, but it is by the sign of your love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.